welcome listeners to the latest RKS App podcast. On today's show, I've got another amazing guest. We've got Paul Helquist, the lead designer of Bioshock. In this lovely interview, Paul discusses his work on SWAT 4, the Borderland titles, and of course, he answers many, many questions about his time working on Bioshock and Deepest Darkest Rapture. So sit back and enjoy a great interview with a true retro gaming legend. Welcome to Arcade Attack. <laughs> a retro gaming podcast for up to four players. Panic Boom! Phoenix Bad Welcome back, listeners and even viewers. We've got another super guest on today's Arcade Attack podcast. We've got Paul Helquist. What a gentleman. Um, the lead designer on Bioshock. He also worked on Borderlands 2, SWAT 4. And thank you, Paul, for being here today. Real honor. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about everything. You're a gentleman. And, and again, thank you for um, listening to our podcast on Bioshock. I mean, as you know already, we are big fans. And your feedback was really appreciated. So I can't wait to get get you you know get chatting about Bioshock but obviously before Bioshock I'd love to know how did you actually get the opportunity to first enter the industry I mean what was your first sort of gateway into the gaming world yeah I started out as a uh, game tester at Electronic Arts um, as I was wrapping up my college uh, experience I realized what I was studying which was anthropology and archaeology was something that, uh, you know, the career path was not something I was super excited about. So I started thinking about what else do I really enjoy? And video games was on the top of my list. Did a web search. This was in the late 90s and and found an internship program at Electronic Arts. Um, and I was on the East Coast uh, in Massachusetts. And I drove my butt all the way out to San Francisco and spent uh, a summer doing QA testing at Electronic Arts, drove back <laughs> in the fall, went uh, went back to school and, uh, you know, went did that two, two different summers uh, at Electronic Arts. And in the meantime, I was working on um, level design stuff. Uh, this was back in the days of Quake 2 and oh, Half-Life. Yeah. And so I was, you know, trying to teach myself how to do stuff uh, in those tool sets as I was testing. Oh, man. And we've actually had a few um, people in our show before who started as game testers. And they, um, obviously, I, I'm not having a go at game testers, but they kind of carried on their career. And um, and it, it gave them a good level, uh, a good to understand. They told me anyway, it really helped in the future about, you know, what to what to expect. And I mean, can you remember any games you worked, you tested on back then? And do you agree that that, that, that part of your career was very important for the rest of your career? Yeah, it was, I mean, for me, it was just very eye-opening, you know, like, I'd been playing games for years, but had absolutely no idea what it was like, you know, for the people who are making them. So uh, what was also nice about it is back then the testing department was right next to the developers at Electronic Arts. So like I was in a big cube with a bunch of other testers and all the developers working on the game were right around me. So I was able to really be like kind of in the mix at, at least in terms of like hearing what other people were doing and I could go talk to the developers really easily. That first game that I tested was on PlayStation, the original PlayStation. 
It was called Future Cop LAPD. And heard of it. Heard of it. It's a good game, apparently. I haven't it, played it, it truthfully. No, yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, <laughs> it's one of those games that, like, by today's standards, I look back and I really cringe because the the the, the storyline of the game it was you know set in set in the future, and you are a police officer who like patrolled the streets in a giant like mech, you know, like a oh, giant. <laughs> Nine kind of thing. And, and yeah, and you like murdered hundreds of people. Wow. And, you know, so by today's standards with, with everything going on with policing, especially in America, I'm sort of like, yeah. oh gosh, what a horrible, what a horrible <laughs> game concept. <laughs> but it was, yeah. it was exciting to test. There was like single player and multiplayer. And so I got to explore a lot of different parts of, of uh, you know, how games were built and see all kinds of things that I, you know, the regular gamers don't get to see all the things that are horribly broken for so long. And, yeah, you know, uh, so, yeah, it was great. Um, I, you know, learned a lot, got to got to pick the brains of some of the level designers and stuff like mm-hmm. that, uh, which was very valuable uh, as I, you know, expanded my career. And you said that you creating what, maps and levels outside of your work at home, I assume, like making Half-Life maps and Quake maps and so forth. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I did some Quake 2 multiplayer maps, and then and this was one of the pieces of advice I got from a level designer who worked on Future Cop, you know, because I, I was like, wow, this is exciting. I really want to do this in the future. And I asked him, you know, what should I be, what should I be doing in order to get your job someday? Um, and And he said make single player experiences because back then multiplayer was was like the hot new thing you know where it was like wow 16 yeah. players in a game this is amazing you know yeah. um and so it was the hot new thing and so that's what a lot of people were doing but most of the actual shipped products like were primarily single player experiences yeah. like half-life and and games of that nature so so i sort of set aside multiplayer design and started trying to really think about um, you know, those single player experiences and interacting with the player in, in very in a very different way than than just making a cool space for people to yeah. fight each other. So that was a huge piece of advice that I got that that served me very well. So I started making I made this about 45 minute half-life experience, um, which helped me get my job at Irrational. Wow, we'll talk about Rational in a second, but really quickly, I mean, Half-Life is one of my favorite games. Um, I, I love Half-Life 2 as well, I'm sure you agree, but mm-hmm. um, were you always, was FPS your kind of go-to? Was that your sort of games at the time, or were you sort of pointing that direction? Or Yeah, F- my two my two primary genres back then were FPS and RTS. Um, oh, yeah, so, yeah. So I, in college, uh, you know, we would, my, me and my friends uh, had some friends who had a house, while I was in the dormitories, and so I would like load up my gear and and bring it over to their house, and we would you know do land parties, and we played a ton of uh, we played FPS stuff, Quake, Half Life, all the multiplayer mods, like ton- all those crazy mods back then. Um, but we also played a ton of Warcraft Two, oh, so Age, Age of Empires, um, and uh, Total Annihilation was another one that we got into for a while. So like that was those were the primary things that I was playing a lot of back then. 
Paul, mate, that you sound like very similar to me. They are my go-to games, especially when I was getting to the PC gaming. Honestly, Warcraft Two, you know, Command and Conquer sort of games, and oh mm-hmm. man, so excellent. Um, let's talk about irrational games because you know that's a big opportunity. You know, Electronic Arts is huge. Let's not get get me wrong, but you you got a really interesting job at Irrational Games. They're just kind of finding their feet. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, and you. you how did you get the chance to work there? And, and did you meet Ken Levine quite early doors? And how did that sort of opportunity come about? Yeah, for sure. So uh, that all started while I was at Electronic Arts. Um, yeah. uh, I got my first. So while I was there, System Shock 2 was released, which was Irrational's first title. Yeah. Um, and since I was at Electronic Arts at the time, I could buy it for $10, which was like the, you know, com- employee discount, you know, from the company store kind of thing. So I grabbed it for 10 bucks while it was currently, you know, going for 50 or whatever at the time. And uh, I-, I got it just because of the reviews and whatnot and loved it. Just, you know, it was totally my jam because um, it combined some of that rpg stuff and character growth but still had the fps sort of roots that was you know something i was very into so i loved it and then i was working on those half that half-life stuff at the time and you know i was graduating that that fall um or you know i had one more one more year of school no this was after i graduated actually so it was sort of like ah, what am i going to do with my life how am i going to get get a job in the industry all that kind of stuff um and so I just started like searching, like who's hiring junior people, um, and Irrational Games was one of them. And I realized the connection to System Shock, and and you know sent them my Half Life stuff. And um, I it was re- in retrospect, it was one of those like really lucky timing things mm-hmm. because they had just finished System Shock, and I found out later that System Shock Two was built with like a few people from Irrational, but also still a lot of people from Looking Glass. There was like this uh, co-development partnership with Looking Glass Studios. And so the Looking Glass people went off to do other things. And a bunch of the the people that were at Irrational like left. They finished the game and, yeah. and left the company and moved on to other opportunities. So the company was still very small and broke. Like they had almost no money, so they yeah. had to hire like they had to take flyers on kids like myself who had no experience wow. and and uh, uh, and it, the primary value I'm sure for them they were looking for people who showed promise but it were also dirt cheap and, and so <laughs> so I got my first job uh, you know I got a call I sent my stuff over to them uh, and uh, I think this was back when like I sent to put like you know the three and a quarter inch floppies into an envelope oh, and like man. mailed my half-life stuff to them So cool! <laughs> <laughs> um, and i got a call from them while i was still in california and they did an interview over the phone uh with ken um mm. uh, and uh, so i did meet him pretty much right off the bat so he he was the primary interviewer him and and uh, uh the lead designer at the time was ian vogel so he was one of my mentors as well and uh, yeah, we we talked about what games I liked, you know, how that how I built that uh, those levels, and you know, like a couple days later, they called me back and offered me the job. Um, so it was pretty uh, pretty great because they were also in Boston. I grew up in Massachusetts, so it was I was expecting that I was going to have to be on the the West Coast, leaving family and all that kind of stuff. So it was amazing for me not only to get a job. 
but also that it was closer to home and, and your family and stuff like that. So cool. I mean, um, what was your first, was it SWAT 4? Was that your first job at Irrational Games? Is that right? So the first game, I, <laughs> you have a question uh, uh, later about like things that I've worked on that got canceled. So yeah, yeah. I worked on a lot of canceled things before. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when SWAT 4 came out, I had already been in the industry for five years. Like the That's first mad. game I shipped was five years after I, after I started that job as a level designer at Irrational. So the first game we worked on was a game called Deep Cover. Um, and it was another partnership with Looking Glass, and it was using the Thief uh, technology. And we were trying to make a stealth action um, RPG hybrid kind of game. Um, that was all based on spies, um, and it was during the Cold War, and we had missions where you were the, like, secret string puller on all these major events of the 60s, so it was like you had a mission to get, you know, to escape East Berlin through the Berlin Wall. You had a mission to uh, infiltrate a Russian secret base, and when you get into the the, the basement, you find out that you, you, you discover Sputnik right before it's about to launch, you know, like, you know, all of these kinds of, all, sounds you, awesome. you were on the grassy knoll during the Kennedy assassination. Like, like wow. it sort of, it sort of did these little, you know, every mission sort of jumped a few years and, and you would, uh, you were sort of exploring all these major events of, of the cold war, uh, as this super spy, um, that of course didn't didn't ever come out. It was a really cool concept. Oh. Yeah, we had a lot of a lot of fun working on it. But that was around the time that Looking Glass was starting to have financial problems, mm. and uh, and so Ken signed up signed us up with a publisher to do a different game um, before the money disappeared for Deep Cover because Looking Glass was going out of business. Oh. Um, and that was the one that you guys actually mentioned on your on your Bioshock one called The Lost. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I worked on The Lost for, for quite a while. That was a PlayStation 2, I think. <laughs> trying to get, remember my years, but I think that was a PlayStation 2 game, and we were trying to use PC engines on PlayStation, and, man, we had it was hard. <laughs> like, Unreal Engine 2, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the LithTech engine, we, we started on LithTech and then eventually went to Unreal because memory management was so, so tight back then. Um, and uh, we eventually finished it. But as you said, it, it never was released because we, mm. our, our publisher got into financial trouble, stopped paying us. Um, and so we were at beta, I believe, when they stopped paying us. And... Ultimately, there was like a whole legal thing where, you know, right. there's a big argument about they they claimed they weren't paying us because we didn't meet the definition of beta. When really, as far as I know, my suspicions anyway, are that they just didn't have any money to pay us. So they were like, <laughs> let's just not pay them. <laughs> and so that, you know, part of the settlement of that was that um, the, the we ended up um, the game just kind of got scuttled, you know, in order to just move on and, and keep everything keep everything going as far as the company was concerned. So so I worked on all of those things and then uh, and then we finally got to SWAT. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you think you had a bit of a curse at some point? So I was like, nothing's coming out. <laughs> yes, for sure, for sure. Uh, it definitely felt that way. Um, SWAT was a great game for us though because of uh, you know having two games canceled. Morale was not great. Uh, we needed something a little bit smaller that we could easily wrap our head around and really just you know 
kind of refined ourselves as a company. And, and uh, so SWAT was a perfect, perfect game for us at that time. Um, it was, it, it was, um, so you worked on SWAT 4, wasn't it? And the previous games, and obviously well-respected. I think it originated from Police Quest. Is that right? I might be wrong. Yeah, right. yeah. The first two Crazy. games were Police Quest. And then, then there was Police Quest colon SWAT. And then, um, I don't remember what's SWAT and SWAT 2, I believe, were that sort of like adventure game kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then SWAT 3 was the first FPS. Um, and so we were trying to evolve what SWAT 3 sort of uh, started. So cool. And obviously, you know, you, you've already you already bought, you know, you know, you had some previous experience in those games you mentioned, but uh, what was your goals for that game? What, what, any, were you, how much was, what was your exact role in the game? What were you, what were you thinking when you were working on spot four, Paul? Yeah. So by, by that time, because of some of those morale <laughs> issues, the entire level design team had left and Ooh. I was the, <laughs> I was like the only designer left. So guess what? I was lead now. Woo-hoo. Wow. Um, <laughs> so I was the lead, uh, the lead designer for spot four by then. I haven't even shipped a game yet. That's so long. <laughs> <laughs> Now I'm the lead. But again, it was a perfect game for me to kind of learn how to be a lead as well because it was very small. Uh, the yeah. design team was just me and two other guys. So I didn't have a whole lot of management I had to worry about. I could still uh, be in there and, and working on things on a day-to-day basis, which was great. Um, so our goals were very simple. It was this is supposed to be a realistic simulation of what it's like to be a SWAT officer. That was kind of the core um the core goal of the game. Um, creatively, like Sierra really wanted this like high level storyline with like, Oh, all the missions kind of lead to some giant climax against who knows what. And we amazingly convinced them. Like if you're trying to make a realistic SWAT game, realistic police simulation game, that's not what the cops, there's no, giant (laughs) yeah there's no giant conspiracy that like multiple things lead up to the like final you know that's a lot of like crazy undercover work and like you know there's like a ton of things and then SWAT comes at them and at the last second and makes sure that like they actually get the guys so we convinced them instead of doing some high level story that each mission would tell its own little story uh, about whatever that particular crime was um and so we, you know, really started digging back into those, you know, system shock environment, environmental storytelling roots, um, and kind of refound our our special sauce that Irrational had um, by, you know, really focusing on those each of those little mini stories uh, that were told entirely through the the briefings and yeah. the things that you would find during your course of clearing those spaces. Which obviously, um, I, I played System Shock one and two. They're both very good, and I, I, you know, I haven't played SWAT four. I'll be honest with you, Paul. Apologies already, but the, what, what you're mentioning, obviously, a lot of that went into Bioshock, didn't it? And I know, I know, it's, you could argue some of it already came before, but can you think of any other elements or big elements in SWAT four that you came up with or you sort of evolved that later would come into Bioshock? We're kind of sort of moving this next step so not really like it, it it was really that sort of telling the story through the world was probably the the primary thing that that yeah. you know were done in both games because obviously the style of bioshock is very very different than like mm. you know 
official police procedure and you know like <laughs> yeah. all, all and like uh convenience store robbery and you know a bank heist and you know like the missions were all all very you know kind of, a lot of them were very much expected sort of police um types of uh, uh situations one mission from SWAT that was kind of in the vibe of, of where we ended up going with Bioshock is we had one mission that a lot of fans of that game really loved where there was a suspected serial killer and they thought they finally had found out where he lived. And so SWAT was sent in to like, you know, kick down the doors and, yeah. and, and bring this guy in. And it was a mission that had exactly one enemy. Wow. There was only the one guy. Um, but it was super creepy. Like you get into this house and it's clear that this is the right guy because there's mm. all kinds of weird things going on in the house. And like you, you find his children, the room that's still like preserved, like from when he was a kid and like all these creepy kids drawings with like, you know, blood and, you know, <laughs> eyes scratched out. And, and like you sort of descend from the top floor into the basement where, where he's, you know, got his latest victim about to, you know, you're trying to rescue her before, before he gets his latest victim. And so there was a lot of that creepy element yeah. of, of like, uh, and there was a lot of randomness. So you never knew where you were going to find this guy. Sometimes you find him in the very first. Oh, room. wow. And sometimes you'd have to like search the whole building before you found him. So, um, so there was a lot of that, like it's quiet, too quiet, ambient noises and, you know, jump, you know, that kind of like tension building jump scare kind of stuff that, you know, obviously was a, a big part of Bioshock. Of course. Yeah. And it was a success, wasn't it? Spot four did well, got good, great reviews. It sucked. Did it sell well? I know that, I don't remember. I mean, back then I wasn't really privy to to too much of that stuff. I think, I mean, it was PC only. Consoles were just starting to really explode at that time. So like its market share, you know, was not huge. Sierra was also on its last legs in terms of uh, as a publisher. So they didn't exactly like, it should have been, in my opinion, what Rainbow Six became. Like they were contemporary. The original Rainbow Six and SWAT Four were were contemporary, and SWAT was ahead of them in terms of like this was their second or third game doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but you know, but uh, I guess it was still Ubisoft. I don't remember who published the first Rainbow Six, but they put way more into marketing and yeah, getting yeah. the word out and all that and building excitement and stuff, and then Sierra did. So SWAT Four kind of. Had its fans, but never really, you know, became a, a huge franchise like it probably mm. should have. Like, it was the fourth game, but it was also the last game, you know? Yeah, it's sad, really, isn't it? Because Sierra were amazing, let's be honest, back in the day. And it's mm-hmm. a shame. It is a shame. But, well, let, let's talk about Bioshock because, sure. you know, you know, oh, man, you know I'm a huge fan. I, I'm... I've only played it recently. I only, I only completed it quite recently. Um, it's one of those games that sort of passed me by, and I was blown away. And I figured, wow, this game, <laughs> you know, it seems modern when I played it last, like, last few months. I couldn't believe it. And just the fact that it was made many, many years ago, I couldn't quite believe it. So That's before, great to hear, because it's one of those yeah. things when you make these games. Like, I haven't looked at it since we shipped it, pretty wow. much. Wow. Uh, not because I hate it or anything like that. It's just one of those, like, you spend three years yeah, like a hundred percent you know in there you kind of excited about launch and then it kind of goes into the background so it's one of those games that i'm i'm like does this even hold up you know like when i think <laughs> so it's great to hear that that it does hold up at least I've, 
For me, it does. For me, and I'd love to know actually because Bioshock, you mentioned three years, and then you can go in a bit more depth if you want later about how long it took. But what was it? How did you first? Who who came up there? Was it Ken's idea? Was it this idea? I think it was System Shock Three originally, but it sort of. I'd love to know that kind of really early days and how you got involved early in that, and what was it? You know, really early days in the Bioshock life. Yeah, yeah, I, I love telling telling some of this stuff because you know there's a, there's a lot of stuff out there and. Some of it's accurate and some of it's not. And so it's it's fun to kind of tell people, at least what I remember. That's what yeah. I'll preface. Everything I tell you about Bioshock is what I remember. I'm sure some of my coworkers and, and friends on the team may remember things a little differently. So everything is with a, a little bit of a grain of salt. But here's what I remember. After the when the Lost got into its legal issues and was and we weren't sure if it was gonna ship and all these kinds of things, we we had some time without a project and ken ken came to us and said what do you guys want to do and we were like system shock three let's do this like (laughs) like that's what we want to do we're super excited about it and uh he was like well i don't know why don't you uh, you know it did okay but it when looking glass went out of business, I don't know what's going on with who owns it anymore. And like, there were, there was all kinds of question marks. He's like, but you got nothing to do right now. Make, make a, make a demo. And we talked about it. And, and so we, we made a demo on the original Xbox. Wow. It's something that uh, I wish we still had. I wish I still had footage of because it exists somewhere. (laughs) You know, if, if it survived a, you know, a hard drive wipe somewhere, but we, we had a demo of Bioshock working on the original Xbox. Now, it was completely different because the idea back then um, was that it was it was always in an underwater place when we were like, when we can't do System Shock, we didn't want to do space because we didn't want it to be, oh, it's clearly supposed to be System Shock and that kind of thing. But we did want another space that was impossible to leave. That was always an important part of the design was like once our character is there he can't just walk out the door he he needs you need to feel trapped so it was always underwater but it was originally a like lost nazi so cool secret base during the war that they built underwater to like do you know dr mengala horrible experiments that created mutants that were crosses of like uh, undersea creatures and humans so the only enemy in this demo was what we called eel man who was like his top half was kind of you know kind of humanoid with arms and stuff like that but his bottom was like a you know a, a, an electric eel and all of his attacks were electric based and wow. he, would, he would shoot a lightning at you and things like that um and uh yeah that was the first demo and then of course you know ken came back and was like hey i've been working on business we're gonna make swap four it's gonna be cool it's gonna be exciting and so we put that aside and that sort of disappeared for you know wow. while we worked on SWAT um, and then after SWAT what do you guys want to do well we want to we want to work on that Bioshock thing that we had started you know before and Ken was like well I still can't like we still can't get the rights to system shock um, and so he just did this weird really amazing gorilla marketing effort to try to get a publisher interested in in this idea so he he reached out to friends at at game uh game spot 
and they did this retrospective on System Shock 2, and they mentioned that we were working on a spiritual successor to so System cool. Shock 2, and we had, like, one beautiful corner room that was, like, this, you know, kind of decrepit, you know, laboratory kind of space with sparking light, you know, sparks and blinking lights and, like, great mood and everything. No monsters, no nothing. That was all we had. Um, and they, you know, they showed that footage, and that got publishers interested in like hey what are you guys doing and that eventually led us to to get the deal with um with 2k games to make bioshock that's that's my that's my memory of those like very early days of of where bioshock came from we need to see that demo somehow, Paul. Can you imagine? Oh, I know. It would, you would become a millionaire on YouTube. Can you imagine? <laughs> it, I mean, it would be hilarious, too, because, it, you know, it's totally different look and feel. And, and you know, this you know we were going to have, like, Shark Man and Eel Man and Urchin Guy and, you know, like, all, all of these sort of, like, you know, it was just a totally different feel than where we ended up with Splicers and Big Daddies and all that stuff. So, I mean, I remember talking about Bioshock on the pod and I was like, there was originally going to be Nazis. I wasn't quite sure. And it was like, is this actually accurate? And wow, originally, I suppose you said, yeah, it was back in the really early days. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we never really built that, but that was like the initial concept. It was always going to be an underwater thing because that was our space where, well, if you're stuck in this place, you can't just open the door and leave, you know, like, uh, you know, that's, that's a kind of an important part of that survival horror vibe is, is like, why can't, if you're playing this, you're like, why don't I just leave? You know, yeah, you, yeah. Need, you need to answer that question. So players just put it out of their head and, and get involved in, in the situations you put them in. I'd love to know, cause obviously you're the lead designer of Bioshock. I mean, what, a, what a title, um, to have and what was your exact role? I don't, you know, I don't be patronizing, but can you go a bit more detail about exactly what you did when you knew the project was going ahead, what was your influence, your, your decisions, how closely did you work with the team? I'd just love to know a bit more about your kind of input into that masterpiece. Yeah, sure. So the initial, and, and you guys got this um, pretty, pretty right with uh, on your previous cast. Um, I remember in the early days, Ken coming to the, coming to us and being like, I've got this idea for this, this, AI system that I want us to explore. And he talked about watching uh, nature shows and how there were, you know, the, the predators and, oh. and the, the, um, the prey. And he was like, but I want to add a, this third idea in there um, so that there's these protectors that guard the prey and the, and the predators. And those were the initial words. Like it was protector gatherer and prey mm. uh, or protector gatherer and and predator, yeah, predator, protector, prey were were the sort of original ideas that eventually evolved into Big Daddy's Little Sisters and the, and the Splicers. Um, so that was his like, this is the this is the cool thing that we're gonna do that's really different and special and, and sets us apart. Um, and then he just kind of like let us run with it. Um, and so I basically was I basically came up with all of the systems like. Yeah. The the one of the core early ideas was mod your mod the world, mod yourself, mod the world, mod the weapons, mod the mod yourself. That was also the kind of pillars mm. of, of like what the design wanted to be about. So we just started designing systems, and I designed the majority of them. So I designed the plasmid plasmid system, the weapon creation system, the crafting system, the hacking mini game. I did. 
Um, basically all the core systems, like I did the initial designs and then of course worked with all the team, all the other designers and, and, and team to like continue to massage and, and whatnot. Um, but the, uh, so yeah, I did, I did all that stuff. I was in charge of, uh, you know, I would review every level with the level designers and, you know, talk about moment to moment experiences and, you know, what happens here and what scripted event here happens here. And don't forget that this is a story beat that we need to, you know, we need the pacing to change here and, you know, all that kind of stuff, uh, I was involved in as well. Um, I also, did the like actually implemented the moment to moment of the medical pavilion. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all of all of those like early introductions of like of the different weapons and plasmids and stuff in 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 that mission. Um, monster placement, all the little, you know, scripted events, the you know, some of the jump scares that I know people remember, like I know a lot of people remember the shotgun introduction where all the lights go off and, Sorry. you know, and the guys are just sort of coming out of the darkness and they, ha they always get close so that the shotgun is really shown off because they, they're all melee guys so that you're like, where are they? Where are they? Bang, bang, bang. Um, you know, so that's, that was kind of the, uh, you know, I was involved in all that um, moment to moment stuff and medical as well. I also, yeah. I also wrote the first draft of the script. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's one of those things that, like, we were building the game, building the game, and Ken was really busy, and I was like, we need a script because there's all these moments that are supposed to happen, and we don't know what they are and where they're supposed <laughs> to happen, and we can't build spaces <laughs> for it. And he was like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I want you guys to explore. I don't want, you know, my story to get in your way. Um, and eventually the project leader, uh, Alyssa, said to me, like, I know you need this, and he's not, he's not, ready yet so just go write what you need to exist wow. and so i wrote the whole script poorly i'm not a great writer but all the like hey we need this stuff to happen like this is how this quest works and like all of those barks and like all that kind of stuff i sort of like gave, eventually gave him an outline um and then he came in and made it awesome as far as like mm. you know the, the way it all, you know, was presented and, and, you know, he's a good writer. So <laughs> he, and, you know, it was, it was nice afterward. He's like, wow, this was great. Cause I didn't have to like, think about all those stupid, annoying game details. You had already fleshed all that stuff out. I just had to like punch up the, the turns of phrase and things like that. Um, but I did, I'm pretty proud of this. I did write in the script that any time that Ryan uh, or Fontaine, I should say, was controlling you that he would have a catchphrase that he said. Yeah. I didn't know what the right catchphrase was. So what I put in the script for the time being was Stan Lee's Excelsior. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like, I was like, this is terrible. But I put a note to Ken. I'm like, I think he should have something he says every single time. I'm just going to put this in there. It's terrible. You know, have fun. Go come up with the right thing. And he, of course, came up with the would you kindly. Unbelievable! That's such a great Paul. What a great story! <laughs> wow, you you really did help make you know you, you know proper part of, the, of this you know amazing game. And um, it sounds like you had a good. Would you say it's fair? You had a good relationship with Ken. You got on well with him, and you seem to you, you complement each other. We we did. I'll be completely honest. Um, we did for a while, 
And then right. as the tension of shipping this thing got, got bigger and bigger, um, there was a time in that er in those early days where Ken was really busy just trying to keep the company running and keep the company like surviving. I've never heard anything, but I suspect now that I'm a, a small business owner that he had some months where he was worried about payroll. And so right. he was worried about the business and was like, I hope, I hope my team's doing awesome stuff. <laughs> and then during the process of building Bioshock, he sold the studio to uh, take two and, and, and 2K. Well, with that weight off his shoulders, he was now able to like, all right, let me get back in here and really, right. you know, buckle down and be a big part of the team. And so there was definitely some tension because I had basically been running the, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. the moment to moment and, you know, what was important in the game until that time. And so we definitely butted heads. Uh, and it was one of those, I was very young. Looking back on it, I'm like, man, what a jerk I was to him. Like, Honestly, because I've, wow. I've been in his, I've now been in his chair. Like on, by the time I did Borderlands 2, I was sitting in that chair and I know what that was like and what, the pressures and and you know you have your have this vision and it's really annoying when somebody keeps complaining to you that your vision is <laughs> not the right vision or it doesn't match with what has been done already and so yeah we we had a rough time at, at the end um and you know it's one of those things that i kind of regret uh, but we still have a good relationship i've seen him a couple times since there's no no hard feelings or anything but it's one of those looking back on it yeah, like, yeah, man, yeah. I, man, I was young and and didn't really understand what he was dealing with, and and I was a bit of a you know immature. Well, no, I, Paul, thank, appreciate you being honest. I mean, um, I you know I really appreciate being honest about that, and you know, Bioshock turned out to be a masterpiece. So it's you got something right. Let's be honest, <laughs> it was incredible. Um, talk about Rapture for a minute because Rapture is um, a setting that I you know. It, I, I'm used to playing Doom and, and the Duke Nukans, and it, it, nothing wrong with the setting there, but Rapture just seemed to be something completely different. Um, how did you want, because I think you actually uh, very kindly agreed to what we said about about how you wanted Bioshock to make the players feel. We, we used the word immersive, I believe, and you, you thought that was pretty spot on, but are you happy to go into your own sort of depth about that? Yeah, so while we were working out on Bioshock, we kind of had these ideas of what we wanted it to feel like, and, and I had an opportunity to go to GDC, um, and then was involved in this really interest or went to this really interesting talk uh, about the eight kinds of fun and how to like define the vision for your game. Um, and it talked about thinking about how the players should feel was one of the big takeaways uh, that I had from that talk is like defining how you want them to feel helps you understand what kinds of mechanics need to be in there and how that leads to different dynamics and those dynamics are what bring these emotions out into players mm. um so i came back from gdc uh, and as the lead i was like hey i think we already have these but we've never written them down we never said this is what we want the player to feel so let's let's do this exercise um and so we came up with five things that we wanted players to feel while they were playing bioshock and and we had this little mnemonic um once we came up with them and we had this mnemonic that was i see ham Okay. <laughs> so, so the I was immersed. So you wow. guys were spot on. Um, C was curious. H was hungry. And I'll talk about that one more in a second. A was afraid. And M was meaningful choices. Ah. 
so immersed you guys covered that one really well um you know we wanted you to get lost in this world that we were creating we wanted you to like put the controller down and come up for air and be like oh yeah i am still in my living room like that was kind of one of our missions uh for that one curious was about storytelling and exploration of this place and like what happened here how did it all come you know why am i here you know you you yeah. think for the whole game that you're just unlucky you know unlucky survivor and you know but then there's these little clues as the game it progresses and how did this society work like all of these kinds of questions uh, we wanted players to be thinking about throughout the game hungry was not about like oh man my stomach i need some food it was it was about the lack of resources mm -hmm. we, we called it the ragged edge we wanted you to be constantly on this ragged edge of like oh i didn't I don't have enough bullets for my pistol. Do I have it? What else do I have? I've got three shots for my shotgun. Three? Oh, God. Well, that's what I'm going to have to go with. Do I have enough Eve? Oh, well, I've got plenty of Eve. Okay, let's switch to plasmids. Use plasmids for a while. Oh, crap. Now I've run out of run out of Eve. Do I have enough health? Oh, no, I don't have enough health. Like, we wanted to, there to always be a problem <laughs> from as far as your resources were concerned and have you feel like you never had quite enough. Mm. um what was was one of our missions uh for hungry um and uh, then uh what was next afraid is pretty obvious we wanted it to have this creepy you know a uh, creepy vibe uh, uh survival horror kind of uh, influences um and then meaningful choices is is across the board uh, the most obvious one people think of that you guys talked about at length was the Save the little sisters, mm. you know, harvest the little sisters. That that was a moral choice, but it had to mean something. And so we needed it to, to matter in the in the course of the actual mechanics as well. Um, and then on top of that, it's like, oh, I've only got five, I've only got so many slots for plasmids, but I've yeah. got way more plasmids than I can fit in the slots. Which ones do I use? And which ones I pick changes the way it plays, how it feels. Um, in my resource management, you know, like, oh, this one's super expensive. The ones that controlled the AI were very expensive. So you go through your Eve much faster. So maybe I don't want to use those right now because I don't have much Eve. Like, mm -hmm. we wanted all of those things to matter um, uh, as well as, uh, you know, the, the moral little sister choices. I mean, uh, you just meant ticking those things off and I'm like, yep, felt that. Felt that. <laughs> you, you achieved it. <laughs> um you mentioned survival horror there, and we you heard on our podcast, we, are, we love Resident Evil games. Um, I'm a big fan of Resident Evil 4 especially, but is it true that that game, um, or, or what, what influences helped you with Bioshock and the team? Was, was it Resident Evil? Were we right on that, for example? Yeah, that was definitely one of them. I know you mentioned my good friend Bill Gardner. He and I are yeah. still, but, still buddies. Um, and yeah, Resident Evil 4 was contemporary while we were building the game. All of us were playing it. Um, really impressed with what they were doing and and definitely we're, we're trying to find some of like what what were they doing here that that brought out some of the feelings that they were looking for and how can we translate those kinds of things so that one was definitely one that we um uh took a lot from but of course we took a lot from our what i would call source material which was system shock um you know i talked about all the all those systems that i built for the most part all i did was like what was in System Shock? How would I modernize that? How would I streamline it? How would I make it more accessible? How would you know? How would that work in our 
not computers and AI and and you know that kind of stuff. How would those things translate to this more analog world of of, of Rapture? Um, and we had this uh, bioscience, uh, obviously, angle as well. Um, that was you know about gene manipulation and all those kinds of things. You know, so how can we do some of the things that some of the same systems that were in there, but through the lens uh, of Rapture research? was one of the ones that was in System Shock that eventually became the photography mechanic. Wow. Like, yeah, how, yeah, would you, yeah. how would you research in a much more analog way? It's not going to be like computers analyzing data. So we had this, you know, we had our, our magical camera that could somehow teach you that yeah. this placer does whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that, that was influenced from Pokemon Snap. I loved Pokemon oh, Snap back wow. in the day. And was like, was like photography is really cool. Oh, uh, there's one with ghosts that you could take pictures of the ghosts and that was how you killed them. Uh, yeah, oh, that's a PlayStation game, isn't it? Oh, yes. I actually played Fatal it. Oh, frame. Fatal that's frame. It. That's yeah. it. So like the, that was, you know, some influence for, for that system came from those two games uh, about, you know, put Snap had all this like, if it's centered, you score better. And if, you know, you get multiple Pokemon in, in frame. So a lot of that stuff became like how the, the uh, research got graded. Uh, was stuff influenced from Pokemon Snap. Wow. But uh, it's just hearing Bioshock and Pokemon in the same sentence. <laughs> you wouldn't think it, would you? But it does make sense when you say it. That's <laughs> cool. That is so cool. Um, any movie influences at all? Or is it just literally, you know, is there any other things? Well, that- obviously, Ayn Rand was was a huge influence for the, you know, sort of vibe of mm. what Rapture was all about. And um, I don't know if anyone's ever mentioned this, but Andrew Ryan is essentially a male version, a male name, like manipulation of Ayn Rand, Andrew Ryan, you know, like there's a lot of the same sort of sounds and stuff. So that was, I'm pretty sure, very much on purpose from Ken's standpoint when he, when he named uh, Ryan. So yeah, I know he was very much influenced by the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, Atlas shrugged (laughs) so cool right was 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 what he called himself what fontaine called himself so like you know that's another another wink to to the ayn rand uh influences um i do one story i do want to tell this is maybe calling out my buddy bill but I, i specifically remember while we were working on on bioshock and we're getting into that preview season. You know, we had had the, a Game Informer cover. That was a big deal. And, like, months continued to pass. And all of the press kept talking about Ayn Rand and objectivism. And I remember him, like, just, like, throwing his pencil down onto his desk. And it's like, if I have to hear one more thing about goddamn objectivism instead of all these fucking cool gameplay things we have in this thing, I'm going to lose my mind. Like, all the press wanted to talk about was like, you know, the world and the story and the objectivism. And he's like, yeah. all these amazing abilities and all this yeah. cool AI happening. Like, well, how come no one is talking about that? Well, yeah, that's crazy. It just... <laughs> but at the time it was so heady compared like the, that, that influence was so heady compared to what else was on the market at the time that like, I think the press really latched on to like, well, hang on a second these guys are are trying to push in in ways that games generally don't push in this sort of more i don't know academic to some degree more like deeper 
themes, more mature themes. You know, it wasn't just like, hey, there's a guy over there. Let's shoot him in the face. You know, there was this there yeah, was a yeah. lot, a lot more going on in our world and a lot more like social commentary and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I think that grabbed on for the press of the time. They were like, whoa, this is something really different. Let's talk about that. All kinds of games have cool guns and you know yeah, yeah, cool yeah. monsters and whatever, but this is what's really special. At least that's what I think uh, was was going on there. Nice. But I remember him getting so frustrated. <laughs> Everyone was talking about objectivism instead of like awesome yeah. plasmids and cool, you know, big daddies and little sisters and all that stuff. That that's great. Um, I mean, let's talk about the plasmids for a minute and, and the enemies and the weapons. And um, I mean, it's, it's a good selection. I have to say, a really really good selection of. of it's just again really interesting things but was there any ideas for weapons or plasmids or enemies that just didn't quite make it into the game initially do you have any ideas that just yeah the the enemies we i don't remember i'm not gonna say i remember a detail but i know we had a lot more ideas than what we actually did like um one of the reasons there's so few enemies on screen back then is like the ai was super expensive on on the on the xbox 360 360 yeah that's the right one um like uh you know the machine just wasn't super powerful for you know so we couldn't do quantity so we had to like get we spent more effort on like the nuance of how they worked and so we had like 10 or 15 different enemy um splicers and we only ended up with like five um uh just because of yeah all the kinds of oh that's too many but there won't be enough square footage in the course of the game to really highlight them all let's just focus on a few and and go a little deeper into what kinds of things they can do um weapons i don't remember anything i'm sure there were that there's always something on the cutting room floor i don't remember but one that i did did want to share that i don't know if anyone's ever told about but remember i said mod the world mod the weapons mod yourself so whatever happened to mod the world? Like oh that yeah, that didn't really ever happen. Maybe the cameras know? a bit, the security cameras. Yeah, yeah, that's more like the. That's that's like yeah, we can, <laughs> we, can we can we can maybe maybe take credit uh, and say yeah we did it. But the original <laughs> idea for mod the world is that there were these environmental states that the levels could be in, and that there were two different vectors. There was temperature and humidity so you could have like freezing temperatures very hot temperatures or or sort of normal and high pressure low pressure and normal and the way that all the enemies and weapons and like everything was going to change how it functioned depending on what the state of the of the world was so if it was super high temperature perhaps uh you know this splicer gets much more strong because he loves the the hot weather whereas the the cold weather uh, you know, splicer would become lethargic or slow or whatever. So there is this idea that like you would be s- switching the environmental controls regularly. There'd be these like stations on the wall that you're like, oh crap, I'm fighting these guys. I got to make it cold because that'll slow them down. Or I got to, you know, turn up the heat because that makes them, you know, evaporate or whatever. I don't remember what all those details were, but um, so that was in the design for quite a while. Um, wow. and, and we did some, tests on it and stuff and we ended up cutting it because man the game was just too big we had too many things to do but the main reason we cut it was 
it's really hard to communicate to people what the temperature is. Like it's a, you know, <laughs> through, through a screen, like it's just, yeah. it's, oh, you feel it, right? You don't see temperature, you feel temperature. So we did, we had a, like, the world was changing lighting so that like when it was cold, we like got cooler, cooler lighting. And when it was hot, we got hotter light, but it was too subtle and, and sure. people, people couldn't feel it. Humidity was even, <laughs> humidity was mostly like, is it foggy or not? Like was the best we could do was yeah. how, much, how much sort of fog we could put into the spaces. So we ended up, we ended up cutting that. Um, but it was one of those ideas that like, we're like, ah, oh, man, I think we always felt that there was something there that, that we were never able to quite, you know, show off enough to, to make it stay into the, in the game. So it was one of the ones that got, to, got, uh, got cut. All right. That's fine. And appreciate you telling us. I love hearing this kind of, stuff that i don't know it's never been maybe spoken before really but i'd love to know about this famous message because obviously your name's in the credits but there's a there's a famous message called paul helquist not doing his job is it can you give are you happy <laughs> this, to explain what this, that's about and this stupid thing about once a year i'll just be going about my day and my twitter feed will explode with with mentions and it's always this like coming back about yeah. once a year somebody finds it and is like oh my gosh check this out and <laughs> Um, if I remember correctly, it has something to do with the Vita chambers. There was some, there was some, you know, we did a, some sort of change to how they worked or a fix for a bug that required the designers to like go to every Vita chamber and, and, you know, check a box of some kind. Um, and the error message when the box wasn't checked, my, my lead programmer, um, decided it'd be funny to like, you know, QA will see this and, and, you know, they'll put the message in the bug and it'll be a like, you know, I'm teasing Paul every time he gets a bug about this. Well, obviously one of them slipped through oh, and no. we forgot to check the box. So every, <laughs> so every now and then somebody will, will see this message. And, and yeah, it was basically a, like, it was a message to QA to bug, that particular, you know, location or, or Vita That's Chamber. So I can't remember the exact details of what the issue was, but it, I have a feeling that's something to do with the Vita Chambers. And if you respond it, it respawned in this particular Vita Chamber and didn't have, you know, and, and the game was in this particular state, you know, because we had a few fail-safes in the Vita Chamber system that was like, yeah. if they didn't have the resources to pay for it, there were these, like, other <laughs> things that we did. So I think there's some, like, why it doesn't come up very often is it's a particular Vita chamber mm. and the players have to be in a particular state when they are respawned in order for this particular error message to, to proc. And you didn't know it was in there after it was shipped. Is that right? Or did you know? Or No, I, I no, I didn't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's one of those like, yeah, did everyone do their passes on checking all the boxes? Yeah. Everyone, all those bugs got, you know, all the like yeah, yeah. tasks got resolved and like, QA never found it, so we didn't wow. see the bug, and off it goes, right? <laughs> yeah, I assumed it was an Easter egg or something, like a little joke in joke in the game, but obviously, no, it was totally, it was totally <laughs> to like highlight that there was something that we hadn't done, um, so that if QA saw this, they knew to bug it. It's funny. Do you, do you look back and cringe a bit, or do you just find it funny now? It's, it's, it, it's, it's yeah, it's fine. Like whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's, you know, maybe a little annoying that it was so specific and not like <laughs> yeah. a designer didn't do his job, yeah. specifically me, but, you know, whatever. 
Um, is there, there, was a whole, there was a whole article on Kotaku about this. So I'm like, well, I guess good press. Any press is good press, right? <laughs> that is funny. Um, th- there's a good Easter egg, isn't there? There's a Pac-Man in, in hidden in the game. Um, is there any other Easter eggs or things like secrets that maybe aren't very well known or are you happy to reveal anything else? Or is it- I don't remember. It's been so long. Um, but yeah, there's all kinds of fun little game designers love putting that kind of stuff in there. Um, yeah, the pack. I do remember the Pac-Man when you mentioned it with the, cool. the cheese wheel. With yeah, um, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sure there's more. But I don't. I don't remember anything specifically. Um, you kind of sort of mentioned it earlier. I mean, we're going to move on soon to um, uh, from Bioshock. But w- did you realize very early days that this was something pretty special and um, that this this game is going to change? You know, arguably change the genre a little bit, bring things up a little notch or two. <laughs> Not at all. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we, we knew what we were trying to accomplish, but mm. games like this that are so systemic and are so reliant on every all the pieces need to be there before you can see how they all fit together. And so there were months and months and months where it was like, wow, this feels like crap. Why does this <laughs> feel like crap? Well, this feels like crap. You know, this... This is the crafting system feels like crap because the weapon modification system doesn't exist yet, you know, like or whatever the case may be. That's just sort of top of the head. But like everything was so intertwined that if one piece wasn't working well, it would cascade to another piece feeling crummy because you're like, well, why would I upgrade? Why would I craft this thing since I don't I can't get the upgrade yet? So this crafting system also feels lame, you know, whatever, like all those kinds of things. The AI took a long time. The big daddies and little sisters took a long time to feel like anything. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so like, I, I generally say that the game didn't, like, we didn't know what the hell we had built until about three months before the original ship date. Wow. wow. So, like, we had three months left, and we're like, oh, my gosh, I think there might be something here, and it could be cool. Unfortunately, we only have three months left, and that's not <laughs> nearly enough time. Thankfully, you know, as we were getting close to that original ship date, um, 2K also realized, hey, this is this could be freaking amazing. Let's give them some more time to make sure that it, it, it can reach reach its potential. So the good news, <laughs> I remember this meeting where we were told this and we had been crunching, you know, for a while yeah, already yeah, yeah. because of this original date. And it was like, good news, bad news, everybody. You know, good news is we have a great game. It's going to be amazing. And, you know, 2K is going to give us the time it requires to, to, to really, you know, hit it, out of the, hit it out of the ballpark, so to speak. Bad news is you thought you were done with Crunch. <laughs> we got three more months. Let's do this. Wow. <laughs> you know, so we were, you know, we were like yeah. crescendoing to like, okay, we can rest after this date. And then no, the, the mountain no. kind of just got bigger for, <laughs> for a while, but we were excited that like mm. a lot of the bugs and things like that, that were really, you know, problematic at that time we were going to be able to address. Um, and when it came out, it was, you know, System Shot 2, amazing game, didn't sell very well. Bioshock, Again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I, maybe people are a bit worried it might have the same sort of thing, critically respected, but didn't quite sell well. But it, it, it just exploded. I mean, how did you feel? Um, yeah, you, you had a question in here about, like, when did I, like, really start to feel I had something special? I'll, I'll answer that sort of leading into to that one. For me, it was the day that we got music 
into the bathysphere ride. So that initial, like you, you get into the bathysphere and you ride and, you know, go down and, and the reveal of the city and you're going through and the, so cool. the whale and everything, you know, like all that, that stuff. Like I had seen that sequence a thousand times from when it was all just like gray box and clunky and horrible. And then slowly arts coming in and we're tweaking and like, oh, we got the plane smashing through. Oh, that's cool. Like all those bits. But the day the music came in, it suddenly hit you somewhere a little bit deeper than, you know, than I was expecting. And you, I got those goosebumps of like, whoa, that's, this is amazing. Like, <laughs> it, you know, it went from a thing like, oh, I got to sit here and watch all this until I can test what I'm testing. And then to like, whoa, yeah, I felt yeah. something just there. That was, this was, this is really amazing. Yeah. Um, so that was like the first moment I remember being like, this might be amazing. We, we might have something really awesome. Now, to answer your actual question to like reaction to the, to, I when, when we shipped, I was like, as a designer, especially as a lead designer, I only see the flaws. Right. So when, when a game ships, I'm like, man, we didn't fix that thing. It's just awful. And like this scene didn't quite turn out. Like, ah, I wanted so much more out of it than where we were able to get to. Like, all I could see were, were those kinds of things. I'm like, I know it's good. Mm. I, I, I know it's good, but eh. So I was like, it's probably like a 90 to 91. Like, hopefully we get into those 90s. It's the low 90s kind of game. And then it was just, it comes out. Game of the year. 10 out of 10, 100%, 10 out of 10. We were just like, holy smoke. (laughs) Where did this come from? And, you know, and a huge part of it was the big reveal that got everyone in it. We we sort of had this, you know, this was... at that time, everyone remembered the sixth sense and like how when oh, that movie yeah, came out, yeah, it yeah. had it, its twist. Like everyone was like, "Oh my god, we didn't think we had done that for games," but it turns out we had. Um, and you know, so that that sort of created this really high impact moment as well that that just stuck with people. Um, and it's one of those things that when you know the whole story and you're building it, you're like, "This is so obvious! Oh my god." What like I didn't guess it. I didn't guess it. Yeah, everyone's <laughs> gonna know by like the second mission. This is this is dumb. What you know, and of course it you know it fooled pretty much everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was it was super exciting. We had no idea it was gonna get that kind of uh, of a response. And yeah, it was you know it was just really magical and, and wonderful to to read all those reviews. And we were finally done, so we were resting a little bit, like we were coming down <laughs> off of the off of the push as well. So yeah, it was a great time. Just a quick, a couple of really quick questions on Bioshock before we move on. Really, um, would you ever, if you had the opportunity to step into Rapture, would you ever like to do that yourself? Yeah, this is an interesting question when I saw it on your list. Um, I think for me, the answer is yes, but only if it was like Disney World. (laughs) You know, like if it was like, you know, the Star Wars world that they've created where it's like, I can go in here and feel like I'm fully immersed in this space but I know it's Disney world and the yeah. splicers are actors and they're not <laughs> yeah. really going to kill me. And like, but to like explore all the props and these cool spaces and feel like you're in this underwater utopia and stuff like for sure, that would be amazing, but <laughs> not as it was portrayed in the oh, actual game. <laughs> I <blame you. laughs> 
It's an amazing setting. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll join you as long as it's a safe, a safe space. <laughs> <laughs> How about plasmids? If you could choose a plasmid for yourself, um, I managed to ask Ken that, as you know, but I'd love to hear your opinion about if you could choose one for your own personal abilities. Yeah, when I saw this, I was like, you know what? I got to refresh my memory on what was there. And, and I found it interesting that I was like, if you had asked me how many plasmids were in the game at the start of the podcast and I hadn't gone and looked it up, I would have been like, there were like 20, 25. And I was like, no, there's like 10. <laughs> there's like way fewer than I remember. Wow. Um, so uh, Ken picked the bees mm. from listening to your thing. And I was like, wow, that's bold. That's a bold decision. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little more practical. I think if I, if it was like all entirely about practicality, it would have to be telekinesis. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. you know, like, ah, oh man, I left the remote over on the, <laughs> yeah. you know, it just, you know, like grab it, like those kinds of yeah. things. Um, you know, we've all had, had, you know, I grew up as a Star Wars fan. So like I was always pulling lightsabers when I was playing as a kid. I was, yeah, I pulled the lightsaber from across the room. Like, so telekinesis would probably be the top, but it's also kind of like everybody probably picks that. So if I had to go to a second one, (laughs) it would be the springboard trap that, oh yeah, well, it's not springboard, (laughs) springboard trap was the development name for that plasmid. It was actually the cyclone trap. Uh, is what it, what it shipped as, but we called it the springboard trap at the time. I loved that one when I was playing the game. It was just just silly, stupid shit happened every time I used it that made me laugh. <laughs> and I, I, I can imagine in real life it would be a fun for you know pranks and stuff on your buddies to like put you know put these little cyclones in front of them and watch them go flying up in the air, <laughs> or, your, or your cat. Like how much fun would it be to launch a cat you know <laughs> up in the air? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that's probably what I'd pick if it was, you know, for fun and not oh, practical. <laughs> yeah, no, this is that's great answers. Um, again, I don't want to um, bring up anything too personal, but can I ask maybe why you didn't work on any future Bioshock games? Was that kind of your? Did you move quite soon after shipping Bioshock, or and are, are you a fan of the other two games in the series, for example? Yeah, so I didn't work on it. So after Bioshock, I had mentioned that there was some, you know, some tension between Ken and I. Um, and I realized that, like, I, that was what I had done with Bioshock was the pinnacle of what I could do at Irrational. Um, I could never lead my own game at Irrational. It was a one-game studio. Ken was obviously the guy, rightfully so. Um, and so it was like, well, where does my career go from here? There's never going to be a better time, especially after the reviews came out, mm-hmm. for me to go look and see what else is out there um, yeah. in, in the industry. So um, Bioshock opened a lot of doors for me, got me lots of interviews all over the industry. Um, and uh, and so I decided it was time for me to go somewhere else that had a bit uh, broader uh, portfolio, more opportunities within the organization. So that's why I ended up at, at Gearbox because they were a, multi, uh, a, a multi-game studio um, and they were looking for me to lead uh, with with Mikey Newman, uh, a, a Duke Nukem game of all things. What Duke Nukem forever was it? No, it was called Ooh. Duke Nukem Begins. Oh, okay. it was, wow! It was, you know, this was at the time when like <laughs> Batman Begins had just come out, and right. Casino Royale had like reinvigorated both of those had reinvigorated you know franchises um, in cinema, and so the idea was that we were going to reinvigorate the Duke Nukem franchise, kind of reboot, uh, modernize all that kind of stuff. Wow. That's that's a whole different story. But anyway, I, I went off to Gearbox to to work on, on Duke Nukem Begins. 
which of course never came out because oh. 3D 3D well 3D realms went under and the and the property kind of became in this limbo and so that's what got me onto the Borderlands team. So I guess it all worked out. Um, so yeah, I, one of the options I had when I did move was to go to 2K Marin, which was the new studio that was opening, uh, that was going to be working on Bioshock 2. Um, and a lot of people that I love and respect from Bioshock 1 were heading over to, to help sort of seed that team uh, with experienced folks who knew Bioshock well. Yeah. Uh, guys like Jordan Thomas and Carlos Cuello. Uh, Alyssa Finley was the project manager. Uh, they they sort of went off uh, to Marin, and and they wanted me to come with them. And I, you know, had an offer from Gearbox, and Gearbox was here in in Dallas, which was really cheap at the time, from a cost of living and and real estate and stuff. Whereas they were going to Marin County, which was super expensive back then, just <laughs> yeah. like it's super expensive now. And so I gave them a like, here's how much I would need to make in order to feel comfortable. Um, and a lot of that came from my wife. She was like, Hey, if we're going to move away from family, uh, we need to make enough that I can stay home. We had a three or my daughter was only three years old at the time. So she wanted to stay home with, with Noelle and, uh, you know, and raise her and not have to work so that she wouldn't have the stress of, oh. you know, working and, and raising yeah, our sure. daughter and all that kind of stuff. So we needed to reach a certain uh, financial uh, situation. And I gave them the number for, well, in California, this is how much it'll have to cost. And they were like, ah, no, we're not going <laughs> to, we're not going to do that. So that's, you know, so I ended up uh, down in, in here in Dallas with, with Gearbox. Um, feelings on the other Bioshock games. Um, it's always tough for me to play and feel, uh, you know, sequels to games that I was, I was really involved in. I just had this same situation uh, with Borderlands three. Of course. Yeah. Um, so, cause they do things that I wouldn't have done. They do, they did what they wanted to do and where they thought the franchise would go. And that's exactly what they should do. Um, but it's never what I wanted to do or what I thought we should do next. And so I always have these biased, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, points of view. Bioshock two was quite good though. I did, I did enjoy it. Um, Infinite, I did not like as much, um, and mostly it was if I felt like it got so heavily involved in the narrative that a lot of the like systemic gameplay that I really loved and was of course my, you know, like my contribution, um, uh, you know, became lessened and and really wasn't there. Like Bioshock Infinite is more of a Half Life type experience where where there's this you know, track that you're going down and amazing cool things happen to you along the way. But the the gameplay is pretty straightforward. It, it didn't have that sort of pseudo open world, go wherever yeah, you yeah. want, like craft your own play style out of all these different systems. You know, like it, it didn't really, it didn't really do that. It wasn't trying to do that. And, and I missed it. Um, yeah. On infinite. Um, final question of Bioshock. I mean, Bioshock, isolation you've heard about it no one knows exactly what's going to be like are you looking forward to it paul or what you i mean i'm sure i'll check it out i have a bunch of friends who are working on it um, oh, wow. cool. yeah yeah a lot there's there's definitely some bioshock alum uh from the all different all three of the games uh working on that on that title i don't know anything about it other than i know it's in development and i have fr and i've had friends who be like yeah i'm back on bioshock this is exciting um but yeah, so I'm interested, but I I know as much as you do. <laughs> you're not no way you're involved in it. You're not no. You're not okay. Nah, cool. Um, let's talk about Borderlands Two. I mean, I, I'd love to watch you, Nuka, but I know you're a bit stretched for time. But Borderlands Two again, 
the first game was very popular. It was a bit of a sort of unsurprising hit, you could argue, done surprisingly well. Um, were you a fan of the first game, and how did you get an opportunity to work on Borderlands 2? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, the, the Duke Nukem thing fell apart when 3D Realms went under. Excuse me. Um, so I got I got asked to, like, hey, the Borderlands teams need, need some help. They were very close to finishing, um, and so I got put in charge of the first hour. They are like, we've got this crazy game it's got tons of you know tons of rpg stuff but no one knows how to play once that once they once they figure out how to play they love it but they're just at the time they were just sort of like go nuts like you know there everything was yeah yeah everything was presented at the same time like there was no progression of like first i learned this feature then i learned that feature then i learned this you know how the skill tree works then i learned how class mods work then i learned how whatever it was all just like boom. It was all available in the first moment of the game. So I was put in charge of like, hey, we gotta we gotta figure <laughs> out how to like ease people into this mm. this this game. Um, and so that's what I did on, on Borderlands One. Oh, I did. I didn't know you worked in the first game, so I appreciate that. Brilliant. Yeah, I did. I did. Um, again, uh, last like three to six months max. Mm. Um, so yeah, I was coming in really late. Um, had had to kind of understand what was going on in the game and and try to teach people how to do it give it a little pizzazz as well as much as we could because those that first hour needed to grab people. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I was heavily involved in the zombie Island DLC and the general Knox DLC. I was kind of, that was kind of my, like I started playing with the ideas that of what I thought by uh, borderlands two should feel like. <laughs> um, so it was like, Hey, we can do better with storytelling. We can do better with mission design. We can do, you know, and so we we started refining our Borderlands craft on those two DLCs, um, and then I was asked like, "Hey, what do you want to do next?" You know, in the organization, I was like, "I want to I want to be the lead. I want to be the creative director and on nice. Borderlands 2. Um, and they thankfully let me. And uh, yeah, so that's how I got involved. Um, and and the goals were pretty simple. Like Borderlands One spent huge amounts of time. Finding its soul is what I would call it, Uh, you know, which turned out to be this like trance like combat that in this like getting cool loot and and replacing and rinse and repeat this and this sort of like, oh, what am I going to find next? Oh, that's cool. Let's keep going. So we knew what the heart and soul was. And at the very end, uh, Mikey Newman, who was the writer on the first game, like injected all of this comedy and all of this like yeah. bizarre, you know, these bizarre characters, and like that plus the the shooting and looting sort of became the DNA of uh, of Borderlands. And so, goal with two was keep what's great, improve upon what wasn't great, you know, just just go to that next level on on every possible uh, every possible angle. Very different to Bioshock, Phil, isn't it? Is that fair? The kind of Oh your, yeah, really in your face zany kind of comedy <laughs> stuff. It's um, I guess it must have been quite refreshing after quite a serious. Maybe Bioshock. Is yeah, absolutely. Serious. Yeah, yeah. At, in Bioshock, I mean, I had like serious conversations with my wife about whether she was okay that a primary mechanic in this game was murdering children about the same age as our daughter. Mm. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> like we had a serious like family conversation about that. Um, and then Borderlands was like. You know, I remember when I was working on it, sending a note to 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 somebody who was, you know, still at Irrational. I was like, it's been really refreshing to have ideas on the board. Like, what about, uh, you know, 
a bearded lady with a machine gun for a, you know, a, you know, a hat or something like that was on our like whiteboard of ridiculous ideas. I'm like, so cool. this is real different than, <laughs> than our, than our whiteboards for what Bioshock should feel like. So it was definitely refreshing to, to be in a more lighthearted, a little more yeah, just yeah. irreverent, fun, you know, anything goes kind of, kind of world. I mean, do you have any favorite, do you have a favorite character from the Borderlands series? Is there a character you just, you know, that you really just love? Yeah. Um, I have lots of them uh, for different reasons. Like, I love what we did with Brick in Borderlands 2. Like, he was never, like, my favorite in Borderlands 1, but in, I loved where he ended up, you know, just kind of this big, lovable teddy bear who can, you know, punch someone through a wall. Um, <laughs> and I especially love him in the Tiny Tina um dlc he was just just really fun um who else i don't know that he he stands out to me and i know there's somebody else another character other characters that i'm missing because there's lots of fun ones um but top of my head he's he's probably my first choice uh, good on you and um you, you didn't work on borderlands 3 is that fair paul you, you mentioned yeah no i did not uh, i did not work on borderlands 3 um, um so yeah that was I was all fresh and new to me. Uh, do, do you think, for example, there should be more Borderlands games? I think I don't know if they're working on number four now. I've, I'm yeah. sure there will be more Borderlands games. They would be crazy <laughs> not to, considering yeah. how well they've all been doing. And, yeah. and there's obviously there's been press out about you know the movie is coming soon. So that's mad. Isn't it? I, yeah, I'm pretty sure Borderlands isn't going anywhere <laughs> anytime it's, soon. It's crazy. I, I sorry to try, I mean the the Bioshock movie. I don't know if you know much about that, but then, that never happened. It no, maybe, maybe it won't. And then, but there's, there's going to be a Borderlands movie. I mean, I, I, I guess for so you, cool. I, if you were going to. Oh, I remembered my other character. Oh yeah, Krie- yeah. Krieg, the psycho, <laughs> the playable yeah, yeah. psycho. He was like my baby. Like nice. after Borderlands two, I was pretty burnt out. I was asked, "Hey, what do you want to do?" And I was the the psycho was one of our like potential. Um, playable characters mm. for the main four of BL2. And I was like, I want to make the playable psycho. Nice. And, and my executive producer was like, cool, what do you need? And I was like, I need Anthony <laughs> for writing. I need one programmer and one other designer. And the four of us just went to town, had a blast making that character and, you know, creating this really interesting, weird, uh, you know, dual persona um, of Krieg. So I'm really excited to see Krieg in the movie and see what they do with him. Um, so cool. he, he's yeah. So he's probably my actual favorite just because of all the work that I did to, to create him. Uh, good on you. Um, I mean, you, you now you started your own company, um, stray kite games. I'd love to know why, why, you know, it's a huge, I, mean, I assume that was a big decision. It's not an easy decision to leave a, a large company, but what, what was your going, what was your sort of motivation before that you know, to do that big decision and what sort of games you've worked on since? Yeah. So, um, yeah, the name of the company is stray kite studios Sorry, and, yeah. and, um, we were founded in 2018 myself and a good friend of my show, Chauvin Patel, um, we were both at Robot Entertainment at the time. Um, Robot had some financial issues, and they, you know, they decided to let some people go. Unfortunately, myself and Chauvin were among them. Um, but we had a really cool game idea that we were working on uh, while we were there, and we were like, "Hey, let's see if we can sell this game idea and, and yeah. get something started." Um, so we, you know, why did we do it? Well, we wanted to 
you know, we were both at a point in our career where we were like, Hey, if we're going to fail, let's at least have it be a hundred percent our fault (laughs) 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 instead of, you know, uh, having other people making decisions that we may or may not agree with. And that ends up, you know, uh, affecting our our uh, opportunities and livelihoods and stuff like that we're like well let's try to do it our way let's try to do it a little differently than what other people are doing and see if this can work and um you know so far so good we're still we're still pretty young um what have we been working on um our first the first thing we were able to work on is we um did some contract work with epic on the uh, Fortnite creative mode so we were there right at the beginning of creative, like, and helped them actually launch. That's, the That's massive, isn't it? Um, at the time, that was just Chauvin and I. They just needed a few extra hands, and so so we uh, we helped out where we could, um, and we did a whole mess of games within the Fortnite um, creative ecosystem. Um, one of the things that they wanted from us was to like, hey, we're building all these tools so pe- players can make their own games. Um, makes make some games show you know try to try to push the boundaries help us understand what 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 are what we're capable of what we still need to explore all those kinds of things so we put out like six or eight different modes um, for Fortnite Creative many of which um, were inspired by the mods of of, of my Quake days <laughs> that I remembered <laughs> loving and like hey I want I bet we could do this uh, and so so we did a bunch of those. Um, we recently, the biggest thing we've done actually is, uh, we recently were involved in the re-release of the Tiny Tina, um, standalone Assault on Dragon's Keep that just came out. Uh, oh, nice. Ago. Yeah, that was, so that was something that, you know, still have a great relationship with all the great people over at Gearbox and, um, yeah. we had some availability and they wanted to, to put Tina off by itself so that, so that people who are excited about Wonderlands wouldn't have to play like a hundred hours of Borderlands before they could explore that <laughs> Borderlands too, before they could explore that content. So, um, so we worked with them to, um, you know, pull it out of the, pull it out of Borderlands two, allow it to, to be able to run on its own without all the support of the, the Borderlands, um, code base and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and we had to rebalance it because it was originally balanced for level 35 and up. And so we wow. had to like rebalance it as its own game and, and have it work from level one um, and change how quickly you scale and how fast you get points and all those kinds of things. So there was, there was actually quite a bit of work to be done there, but that was, that was a lot of fun to, to revisit that yeah. content. Yeah. No, I'm pretty, I'm, you must be proud of yourself. I mean, you've come a long way obviously and from the testing days and now you've got your own business and, you know, is there any secret projects you're working on? I suppose you can't say too much. Is that fair? There are. It's one of the things that I kind of hate about this yeah. business. I want to share. I want to talk about yeah, this yeah. stuff. It's really cool. It's really exciting. But uh, we're never allowed to until, you yeah, know, get it. kind of all the cat. <laughs> the cats are all out of the bag already. I've turned the record the- button off. You can now make a joke. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, we're working, on, uh, we're working on a really exciting project right now. Again, I can't talk about, but it's exploring some areas of, of games and simulations that um, uh, that I've never explored before, so it's really creatively exciting. Um, and uh, and we also have a prototype that we're constantly working on um, for our own original game that we're you know trying to trying to find nice. partners for. So, um, where's the best place if people want to keep in contact with you with your latest games? Is it, is it, is it you're on Twitter, for example, or yeah, I am on Twitter. Websites. Um, 
Yeah, at the Elfquist, E L F Q U I S T is is my handle. That was actually a nickname that was given to me during Bioshock. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that's my Twitter handle. And if you're interested in Stray Kite, uh, StrayKiteStudios.com, uh, and we're on Instagram and Twitter as well uh, for the company. Nice. Yeah, please follow listeners. You know, worth keeping an eye on what Paul's up to. Hundred um, percent. Two final questions because I know you're a busy man, and you know it's been a great interview. But my final, my penultimate question is. Quite a tough question. Have you got a top three video games of all time that you just, oh, love, you know, you... It's, <laughs> it's, question. it's brutal. Yeah. It's I brutal. Know, right? um, top three. So I, I'll say, I'll say like, hmm, I thought about this one a lot and I hate to pick three. So I'll give you like some of the ones that were, you know, really influential to me. One of the, one of the big ones for me was the, um, Jedi Knight, Dark Forces 2, Jedi Knight. Was the fir- I'm I'm just a massive Star Wars fan, have been since oh, I was yeah. like five years old. So that was the first time I ever got to turn on a lightsaber and you know like so cool that game be, yeah. be a Jedi and everything. And it and it had some of those RPG elements and stuff like that before I you know explored some other games. So that one always stuck with me. That was one of the games when Ken was interviewing me on the phone. He was like, "What is your favorite? One is what are your favorite games?" And that was one of the ones that I mentioned. Yeah. to him back then um you know and it had some of those light rpg elements as well that started to you know define my career ultimately <laughs> uh, um uh it's hard not to say world of warcraft i mean mm-hmm. it's just this monster that like uh, you know i played it in its early days and uh you know just they really captured that sense of like being transported to another place and another world and so that was that was really incredible for me these days like more modern stuff um i'm a big fan of like the the um insomniac spider-man games that have been coming out have just been Mm. fantastic um very similar to the batman arkham games which i also Mm. loved um i play a lot of quicker things these days i am older family stuff i generally need to like get in and get out so those big games are really hard for me to sink my teeth into um so I've played a lot of Rocket League and, oh, man. and you know, oh, I love Rocket League. Of, <laughs> yeah, those kinds of games that you can play for a few minutes and, and jump out. I'm also a Magic the Gathering fiend. Mm. See all these binders behind me? Which way do I have to go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's those are all Magic the Gathering cards. Really? How many <laughs> yeah. how many cards do you own then? Do you know? Oh, That's I'm I, I looked at my I have an app that I can like keep track of my collection and it's something like sixty thousand. <laughs> <laughs> it's that's complete, crazy it's completely ridiculous it's it's a problem but i love it no, it's been no, it's no. been i've been playing it since 95 so it's it's a part of my life um oh, good on you mate no, so i'm still i still play magic uh these days i play a lot online with pandemic and everything so i'm playing on arena uh frequently Elfquist, if you see me that's me if you're playing magic arena and say hello yeah <laughs> yeah yeah follow put you you, you you agree Paul follow Paul on Twitter you know keep keep in contact I mean some great stories today so thank you so much and um I've it's been great uh, I and thank you again for listening to our podcast listen to some free stupid people talk about <laughs> the old game but really appreciate you it's been an honor we always ask our guests with final questions a bit of a silly question but I, I'd love to hear your answer actually if you could share a drink of any video game character from any game who would you you're choose? making me sweat <laughs> <laughs> 
These are the hard ones. Um, <laughs> this is yeah. It's these are the questions that guys like yourselves on these shows love to do, and it's something that no one ever thinks about ever. <laughs> like, so it's not like I'm like, oh wow, it's always been. Um, wow, I don't know. I really don't have a great answer for this. I'm I'm terrible at this stuff. Um, I don't know. Would would it be a big daddy, for example? No. No, he doesn't say anything. He just goes. That would be it. Would be kind of. Although, how would he drink? Maybe I could see his face. That would be that's interesting. True. That would be interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's tough. I, I don't. No one. No one comes to mind. I don't have like that. That sort of favorite character thing. I suppose. I mean, this is a silly one, but Link has been around forever. He's had a lot of adventures. I'm sure he's got some stories to tell. <laughs> That's actually, that's actually generally my answer. If, I, if someone asks me that, I'd, I'm a Zelda fan, so I'd agree. Link never speaks. Come on, mate. Tell us <laughs> yeah, about yeah, how you're yeah. feeling. <laughs> you must be thinking something here. Like, how many times do I have to save Zelda? What's going on here? <laughs> oh, Paul. Look, again, I want to say thank you again for your time. A real real honor, real pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I know our listeners are going to love it. And um, good luck with the rest of your career. I really mean that. And, you know, It'd be lovely maybe to get in the show again in the future. So thank you so much, Paul. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, was, I love talking about this stuff. It was a lot of fun. So yeah, if you ever have another topic you think I'd be worth talking to, let me know. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. You can tweet us at Arcade Attack UK. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Arcade Attack UK. Check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots more retro gaming goodness and to delve into our archives. Our podcasts are also available on Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, YouTube and Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review and a rating, we'd really appreciate it. If you'd like to support Arcade Attack, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash arcadeattack, which will give you access to exclusive podcasts, interviews and other bonus content. So, until next time, take care and we'll speak to you soon.